Welcome to CultureCast, the podcast that focuses on culture in its broadest sense. From putting people back at the heart of organisational culture, through to the seismic shifts taking place in society every single day. My name's Gareth and I'm from Honey Badger, a UK business that focuses on designing and delivering measurable change to organisations through experience and culture. Today on the podcast, I've got Richard Gagan of Adam Recruitment. Richard is one of those rare people in the recruitment industry that's authentic in the way that he approaches the importance of organisational culture to both the organisation and the individuals that make it what it is. I found it really interesting to talk to him about the importance of culture to the private sector and some of the topics we got into around data and organisational employee alignment I found really interesting. Anyway, I hope that you find it as interesting to listen to as I did to record it. Thanks. Hi, it's Gareth from Honey Badger, and today I'm talking about culture with Richard Gagan from weareadam.com. Richard's got a long-standing, well-known recruitment business, but has a very particular focus around organisational culture and individual culture, which I thought would be an interesting topic for discussion. Hope you all enjoy it. Thanks. Welcome, Richard. Thought we'd get started today by asking a pretty open-ended question. Give us a bit of background about yourself and what you're working on at the moment. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And um, CEO of Adam Recruitment. Uh, we've been around now for nearly 15 years. We are specialists very much in HR, digital marketing and tech, hiring for all manner of sectors and industries, from SME to large corporates. And that business has obviously evolved hugely as the market's kind of gone down the route of technology. And as we'll talk about later on, we started to realize that we sat really on a mountain of information and data that we do for our clients. So now very often we'll do a little bit more than just recruitment for them. But essentially that is still the core of our business. Great. So I think the best way of getting started really is to, to set the scene for what we're going to talk about is get your take on essentially what culture means to you. Yeah, sure. For me, culture, it's a, it's a funny one. You could talk for hours about it, but I think culture is very much the personality of a business. It's the thing that knits any business together. It's the thing I always think, obviously, we deal with a lot of candidates and clients. Very often, a candidate will come to us. The first thing they'll say is, you know, the reason I work here is here, or the reason I'm leaving this company is for this reason. And often, it is the culture. It's so important when you think about, you know, how you choose your friends, deeper emotional relationships, that sort of thing. It's exactly the same in business. For me, culture has always been hugely important but i think it's become more important because people have realized that you want to show your personality at work you, you want to be valued as a person whereas perhaps if you sort of flash back to corporate world in sort of 50s 60s 70s you look at businesses then and it was very much more around what you could earn what the business was what it would do for your career whereas i think now people are looking for a lot more than that and obviously that's been made a lot more prevalent by businesses doing that really well whether it's perception or reality people like google changing the, the sort of face of a business very much making it a place that's a destination. I think it became something that lots of other businesses tried to replicate. But again, as, as we'll probably come on to, I also hugely value businesses that you would actually argue there's big horror stories about culture. Yeah, businesses that are phenomenally successful, like even Apple, who are absolutely exceptional, but you hear lots of stories about them being particularly brutal in the way they execute and, and almost that big strength. So I think culture doesn't necessarily mean it's a soft culture or a certain type of culture, but it is definitely the personality that makes business tick. That's a very good way of uh, summarising it. Just on that point, one of the big things I, well, that I know and that I've seen about Adam Recruitment is that you very much focus on aligning the, the culture and the vision of the business with the goals and the vision of the individual. So when you're sort of talking about there's all these different types of culture and there's no necessarily right or wrong, how do you assess a business culture and establish what it might be? and 
understand that so that when you're talking to an individual and whether they're going to be the right fit, get under the hood of it, get to the detail, as it were. Yeah, I think traditionally it was very, very simple. We would almost interview the client. So ideally with a, a certainly a larger client, you'd get to know the MD or the senior team. You'd get to know the, the hiring managers. You'd hope to get to know the HR team. And you can generally pick up a consistency, which is the internal vibe. And a lot of businesses are very honest as well. They won't just tell you the good stuff when, when you're hiring. For example, some, some of the hires we'll make are actually to fix issues around culture. But how we assess it internally is, yeah, to talk to people, to interview. And even when we talk a little bit later on about the fact that we, we kind of gather all this data now for our clients, you know, generally from candidates to begin with, generally from people who've left the business. And we're able to build a very, very accurate picture as to what are people actually saying about them. In some cases, it might be harsh. It might be a case of, yeah, you always get bad levers and people who might criticise the culture. But generally, you get a fairly accurate picture. And you've got tools, obviously, online, been around for years, like Glassdoor, but I don't always think that they reflect enough of the positive. The people actually work there helps massively. So just to take that a bit further, there's, and it's probably fair to say the recruitment industry hasn't always had the best reputation in understanding and maybe caring or uh, about organisational culture and individuals' goals. So do you think that's a fair assessment or what do you think's wrong in your industry? Yeah, so it's a really good question. I get asked it all the time and I have, it's one of those sort of uh, if you like dinner party questions where people always sort of say, oh, I've had, a bad, I've had a nightmare with a recruitment company or something like that. The chances are it's a very valid criticism. What people have got to remember is there's, there's I think, 50,000 people work in recruitment, not including people who are in-house. 10,000 companies do it. And, and there's such a spectrum of, if you talked about lawyers or accountants, you know, they, they get kind of criticised for certain things and, and kind of all... Mm if you like, tired of the same brush. What I'd say is very true, though, is if, if a business chooses, a recruitment business chooses to work in a certain market, they are going to be a reflection to the candidates of that business that they, they are hiring for. And likewise, they're a reflection of the candidates they deal with. So if you're dealing with people who, dare I say, are less experienced or let you down or clients that are using 10 different recruitment companies and really all they want are CVs fired in, the chances are you're not going to give a very, very good experience to candidates and candidates will feel let down. That you're not giving the time of, of data to get back to people. And we've studied with surveys, you know, certainly for us, Adam came around from a branding exercise where we wanted to be personable. We went to a creative agency and, and they just said, and, and in essence, a lot of recruiters also put their own names on it. And we didn't want to do that either. Partly because my name's a bit of a mouthful. But the, the kind of branding theme was get to know us from Adam. And we wanted every candidate to know us, every client. As an individual, whoever works for us, therefore, it's almost like immediately there's like a code of conduct that that's how good you've got to be. But I get the fact that if we were to work with every man and his dog hiring business and including people who just want cheap recruitment, including people who don't perhaps treat their own staff well, let alone the people they're trying to hire, or even just businesses that are very, very good at what they do, but they're not particularly good at hiring. If you don't get under the skin of that early on, you just end up letting the candidates down and you know, the classic, and I certainly won't be naming any names, but I, way back years ago, I remember dealing with a person, shall we say, sales and marketing director. And, yeah, they've been uh, really, really, quite rightly keen to get feedback at every stage and all that, and I was always very, very good at that. Went into their business and was hiring, and they were just too busy for it. And I, I had to remind them, so look, you know, only a month or two ago, you were a candidate. So I can only be as good to that my candidates now as you're going to be with me. And it's it's that sort of circle. So yeah, it's, it's a passion of mine because I do think it's tarnished the whole industry. I don't think that'll ever go away. And it's also not helped by, there are certain spammers on LinkedIn that I think yeah. are recruiters. Uh, there's a load of spammers when email marketing was perhaps bigger than it is today. Yeah, it's not great, but there's certainly plenty of good ones, I can say as well. And certainly in every sector I kind of refer business to, 
I know there's some great businesses at the top of every market. Yeah, I suppose it's true of almost all businesses, really, or any organisation doesn't necessarily need to be a business. It's There's going to be a spread of <laughs> capabilities depending on how much time and effort they put into what's important to them. Exactly. And it's like any market where you've got the cheap suppliers and you've got the really high-end one. Yeah. So whether you're talking about cars or anything else, it's the same in the service sector. And if you were a kind of individual wanting to kind of assess them, you know, looking at possibly joining an organization, changing an organization, dealing with recruiters, how would you say that they should be able to kind of assess it for themselves? What should they be looking for in working out what, what a good culture looks like and, and the kind of questions they might ask or what kind of practical tips might you give people? The first thing is you've got to build a relationship or at least understand if, you have, if you're not going to get one. So depending on the level of role you're applying for, even a senior role that recruiter might be doing with two or 300 applicants across perhaps 50 people. So you've got to get an understanding of are they being honest, transparent? Can you get as much information out of them as you, as you can? To then understand if that headhunter or recruiter is good and knows their own client, they should be able to do a lot of that due diligence for you. Mm. And I think that's a good starting point. If you're lacking that information, though, and even if you're not lacking that information, it's critical you do your own due diligence. Some of the simplest questions you know, will... will allow you to understand how good a business is, how seriously they take their, their people and what are their objectives? You know, why did the last person leave a role? What's the most senior hire you've made recently? Really, really simple questions that give you a kind of subtle picture of staff turnover. Has that business actually really stuck to its mission, its culture, that sort of thing? Got to treat it as a two-way interview process. Yeah, if you're looking for a role, of course, you need to impress them. Of course, you need to research get to know what, what kind of makes them tick. But the quality of your questioning will enable you not only to find out if the, the job's right for you, but obviously if that business is actually ethical, have, have they got any financial issues? It's all kind of laid out, really. Mm. And it's about how intuitive you are and how much you dare to ask questions in an interview as well. I think yeah. people don't do that and regret it a few weeks later. I won't say I know from experience, but I've seen it via, via other people's experiences that I've worked with. But just stepping aside, probably stepping away from the recruitment in and of itself because one of the reasons I want to speak to you is that you're, you're well known and you've built a successful and well-regarded business in and of its own right and I would say that a large part of that is due to the culture that you built within the business so how have you gone about that what are some good examples of what does a good organizational culture look like and how have you done that within your own business so I'd be really honest to start with and say we've done it really well at times and we've done it really badly at times, I think, and we've learned as much from, from each period of that sort of growth. So I think the first thing is to go externally and not expect that you know all the answers. So plugging businesses, that you know, it's probably not fair on this uh, to sort of pick out one, but we've worked with a couple of people who are exceptional at pulling a team together, looking at what makes the team tick, looking at what the sort of the mission and where, where the business is actually going. And actually getting the team aligned and on board with the culture. And one example I'd give is if there's somebody, if we even make mistakes for recruitment, but we make mistakes in terms of hiring. If you make a mistake generally, and I think that's a good sign that they feel like they own it, it's their business. I think one of the mistakes that lots of businesses, particularly businesses that are much bigger than us, if the team don't believe it's their hire or their colleague or that they own it, very often they'll kind of abdicate responsibility if they see bad practice or if they see something's not right or they don't give a shit about the job. Obviously, in any other walk of life, if you feel like that person has joined your football team or your friends group or whatever it might be, they get wheedled out and it should be exactly the same in um, in business. And then really after that, it's just making sure people are empowered. You know, so anything as small as we moved office a year ago and 
how the office looks and feels, the bits that, that matter to people. It's, it's just us not trying to make it make out as though we know all the answers and, and allowing the team to ultimately, if they are making those decisions, it's what's right for them rather than what's right for me or what's right for the leadership team. But it's constant hard work. And the faster you're growing, the harder it is as well. Well, we grew far too quickly about four or five years ago. And you just can't help but creak at the seams. You know, you're onboarding people. I'm talking about sort of we hired probably grew by 40% headcount one year. And it was really when you look back, it, it was too much, too quick, not enough of our own due diligence and that sort of thing. And inevitably, a year later, you look at the data of it and, you know, we spent the fortune, didn't really do a lot for the business and we learned a hell of a lot. And we've never done that since. But we also learned a lot that we can now use for some of our clients as well, which is good. A couple of things interest me, the aspect of ownership of the business by the team internally, you know, and, and it's something that I speak to people time and time again about, and I've had it in my own business, of people don't treat it as if they were their own business or don't seem to care, and it, it seems to be a big challenge. Sometimes those frustrations might be valid, but my personal opinion is that more often than not, it's unfair to ex- expect people to, <laughs> to treat somebody else's business as if it were their own, which is we'd all like that to be the case. From a practical point of view, how have you managed to build that sense of ownership within the business and how have you seen good businesses that you work with do that? So starting with other businesses, you can obviously look at things such as employee ownership and those sorts of things, but I totally buy into your point, which is if, if they don't actually own it, then they're probably never going to feel how the owners do. And to be honest, probably don't actually want to, because I, I do believe that if people did want to, they'd probably go off and set up their own business. However, I do think a lot of people care to a level, whether that be the office socials or whether it's the way the office physically looks or it's um, across the board, things that are very, very specifically important to them. So I think you can break it down into somebody who manages a team, it's their team and how do they own that. But I think a lot of it's just sensible two-way communication and actually make it part of their appraisal process, part of everything that you talk about. So as much as performance is important for a business, for the individual, it's, it's important to be, that your, your boss or your, your team know exactly what you, know, you want to get out of that day, out of that week or out of that project. And I think that brings a lot of ownership. So there are certain things that we've done where literally there was nobody in, in the senior leadership team got involved in and it was run brilliantly and nor, nor did we want to get involved or needed to be involved. And then, of course, you've got that transition that there are some people who start their career and they don't want to own anything, but obviously that, that can change. And, and certainly we've got people who've done that and become directors and we're even looking at potentially employee ownership ourselves. So I do buy into that concept that you, you're never really going to act like an owner until you actually do own it. Okay. And then something else that you mentioned, I totally agree that maybe more dangerous than not making enough money is essentially growing too fast. It's the biggest cause of business failure and system failure within non-government departments is dealing with rapid growth. So when you talk about learning the lessons from growing too fast in the past and, and you're not doing that again, how, how do you actually approach that? How do you kind of stop yourself from growing? Or I tell people all the time, they say, that's great. Well, I can't say no. <laughs> have you managed that whole challenge? One of the areas is certainly that in our market, it's very, very distinct in terms of where you want to play. A little bit like I've used the analogy of, let's say, the car industry. It's very, very obvious if you're Bentley that you don't want to be selling low-cost, high-volume cars. Yeah. And I don't believe it's any different in our sector as well. So we essentially had to look at where we're strong, look at what makes a good client for us, look at the everything down to the price point, that sort of thing. And we, we thought we can grow profit. We can grow kind of sales turnover to a degree but we can also grow massively on headcount, but we definitely can't do all of those things. So which are important, which fit with our values. And so we looked at 
the quality of the service that we offer. We looked at being a premium product. We looked at being assignment-based only. Believe it or not, there's an old stat that we, we used to, in fact, I'm not going to share the percentage, it's that embarrassing, but a very, very high percentage of jobs that we used to work on were put on hold. And we're talking more than half. You know, people would have rolls out to lots of businesses, that sort of stuff. So we just literally had to look at it and say, it's not that we're not ambitious, it's not that we don't want to grow. When we find really good people, we'll hire them. But we're not obsessed by it. Our growth doesn't yeah. simply by hiring somebody and that person now has to generate sales, which I think there's a lot of yeah. service sector do that. I think certainly lawyers do it, county firms do it, group firms definitely do. It was moving away from that and just being brave enough to think, well, we don't, you know, what, what's the point? You know, there's no glory in your headcount. It's, it's about running a decent business. Out of interest, have you ever, I've done this myself a number of times, where you've essentially cost yourself money by doing the right thing? Have you ever, you know, you, you're working with a, potential customer or potential business who's wanting to grow really, really quickly and hiring and, and sort of made them rethink it or reconsidered and tried to get them to slow down, even though it would have been to your own detriment. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd yeah. Actually say it's gone from being something that we were proud that we once did, but, you know, probably occasionally to something that we do could, could even be half the time, you know, a third of the time. Yeah. So we'll often get people to tail back and you can just tell, you know, if, if somebody was kind of a bit hesitant about how much they want to pay or the process is, is lagging, you could tell kind of without knowing all the data behind it, there was a problem there. And so what we did was we realized that perhaps 10 years ago, we wanted to differentiate ourselves as, as a much more high quality business that, that I guess was more consultative. And we realized that those questions and that data was critical to proving to a client that actually, should you even be hiring this role yet? You know, can you actually afford it? You know, if the sales director wants hundred grand and they want underground OT, let's say it's 200K, how many businesses work that out in the same way a private equity house would, which is that's probably going to cost you 400K if that goes wrong. They just mm -hmm. literally double that number. Whereas what we're doing is actually digging into the data of looking and saying, well, actually, if that doesn't work out, you've spent X, Y, and Z on everything from management, legal, training, you go right across the board of, of what that could cost. And you very quickly get to a point where you do put people off hiring immediately. And hopefully what they'll do is they'll trust us and respect us enough that when they do come back to it and we, we can now help them come back to the table with what they do want to do. Or if it's a multiple assignment, what we might say is, well, look, pick off the priorities. Let's, let's do that first and do it well, and then come back to the other things rather than trying to, I guess the classic is we've just had a three million pound investment fund. fund round. And, and it's almost like they're trying to spend it all in the first three months <laughs> on hiring. And you just say, oh my, yeah, it just scares the hell yeah. out. Yeah. That's because that's not something I've ever done or, or would do, but I think it's very understandable why they've got those downward pressures. But I think, yeah, it's just getting under the data. It's being really, really honest with people and really challenging. And do you know what? We've, we've also put people off. You know, there are some people who don't think that that's our job to ask those questions. And if that's, if that's the case, I, I'm certainly fine with that as long as they're doing it themselves. And if they neither do it themselves or want us to do it, then I guess that qualifies them as somebody that I think for us is too high risk and probably will fail in what they're doing. You also talked about speaking to your customers and businesses about essentially something that I talk about a lot is the assessing the financial return, breaking it down into numbers because that, you know, as a business owner or as a senior manager, you, you know, who's managing budget, you, you ultimately, every time we're, we're trying to, you know, this whole area of building company culture and engaging with teams and improving company culture, ultimately there's got to be some kind of return on that investment. So how do you, kind of broker that conversation how do you approach it have you got any kind of advice for people who might be trying to get buy-in from senior management or business owners into sort of 
doing the right things. So some businesses have a very good handle on they've got a problem, for example, with attrition or they've got a problem with landing people and getting them on board. So forget whether they're using a recruiter or not. Just quite simply, that business can't compete with its own competitors to hire talent. And often you can narrow that down to employer brand, those sorts of things. What, what I often say to people is before you get to that point, work out what you're trying to achieve and what is the cost, if you can, of the overall project. For example, if a business is raising five million quid, the objective is clearly not to spend five million quid. The objective is some that five million was meant to get to somewhere in the strategy. What is that and what's the cost of it? And by the way, if you don't achieve it, does it mean that you'll do it slower or does it mean you might actually never ever do it because you've got a competitor who's going to hit that window quicker? And, and so really it's about getting a number on the size and, and kind of importance of the project that you're working on. And if that project is literally it's a three-year plan to grow from one million to 10 million pounds, that's a huge amount of investment and time and I presume upside for the owners of that business. Therefore, what's it worth to the individual? What's the cost of, of taking a year to hire the most important hire they've got, whether that be an FD, a sales and marketing director, you, you name it. What's the cost of spending all this money on hiring? And actually a year later, 40% of these hires have left, which is not an uncommon stat if you grow too quick. What's the cost of not even having this data? That, that's an interesting one we're making. Yeah. So in our earlier phases of actually turning this into actual formal consultancy that we do for clients, one of the interesting ones is we get, well, we don't even know where that data is. You'd have to help us with it. And you think, we're actually starting to measure what, what the likely, compared to their turnover and profit and all objectives, what's the likely saving that they could make just from the fact that they've, they've admitted they don't even collect the data on time to hire, how quick they can hire, how much attrition they've got, what's the staff turnover in certain areas, what's the performance across different parts of their business, down solely to the way they treat people, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's just a lot of questions, and some people aren't up for it, I get that. But anybody who's really serious about this, who's got a serious amount of money on the table, will be very interested. Anybody who's, I guess, saying the right things about growth probably is really scared underneath as to what this could um what this could cost them because as you know you, you, growth growth can be brilliant but growth can send a business under in a year two years no problem if it's done badly months <laughs> i've seen it happen do you think there's businesses should or organizations should be looking at other things maybe measuring maybe not obviously recruiting is one aspect of what becomes the organizational culture it's a, it's a huge part of it but there's management development the, the communication that less goes on do you think there's other aspects of the whole people part of the, the organisation that comes into culture that, that, they, that isn't quantified or isn't given due attention that should be? Yeah, I, I think well, we call it the people pillar of a business. So when a business says, oh, we're a people business or we're in a sector which is very people are critical. I mean, I think there's a lot more than the, than the amount of touch points we've already found, but we're, we're at about 110 touch points, which are literally yeah. the first but the first point somebody might have heard of you that might think about working for you, so that could be something on social media, that could be a job advert, that could be a friend in the pub saying about how fantastic it is to work at that business. It could be all these different areas, right onto what the interviews are like, how long is it between interviews, what's the perception, does every senior manager give the same perception of that company or at least their own story, through to a lot of businesses are great at landing people, but then kind of when they join, how good your induction, how sort of love do people feel when they come into the probation, a year in, how keen is everybody still to work there from, because there's a, a graph which uh, I'd happily share, which basically shows how bought in somebody is 
from the moment they got offered the job to one year, three year, just as an average, yeah, global average. Yeah. And it's incredible how that drops off. You know, you've really got somebody at the point where you've offered them a job and they haven't even joined you. You've got somebody there that in that next six to 12 months, it's the most powerful period you could use to make them your vision and mission and values. But after that, a lot of it, like you say, it's the nuts and bolts, it's the training, it's the development, it's it's what, and then it's understanding why did people leave? Yeah, everybody knows exit interviews are nothing new, but who uses that data properly? That actually says, do you know what? We consistently lose 25% of our staff because of X, Y, and Z, and look at recurring themes and that sort of stuff. So, sorry, long-winded answer there, but basically, no. that is all the data that I'd gather, and I, I would estimate that if, if it's 110 touch points we look at now, I reckon it'll be 200 by Christmas. You know, it's, right? And we run a, a model with a client. They come up with another problem that they've identified that we've either not thought of, or it kind of complements quite nicely with uh, with what we're doing. I see. I couldn't agree more. I've had that conversation a lot recently when we're trying to assess this whole area and, and assess what might need to change. And we start talking about, well, do you have this information, this data, the, you know, and it, and it goes beyond almost the basic step, anything beyond basic statutory compliance, ultimately. It just isn't there. Is that, would you say that that's ultimately what you would like to see change across organisations generally? Or, you know, if you were looking to, make improvements within your own business with industry with within businesses organizations as a whole what changes would you like to see and what would be the most important or prioritize the most important thing to realize is there's a lot of businesses i don't think this really matters to and i touched on it when we we're speaking earlier about apple if your product and your business and your technology is so strong this isn't about fluffy pool tables and ball pits and all that sort of stuff mm. literally about for me in the same way you as a an FD, a finance man yourself, you, you know, you've looked at businesses for far longer than I have that, that look at why they perform. I think it's down to, are you really a people business? Do you really need to be a people business? And is it or isn't it that important? And yeah. That's, that's also totally fine. Yeah. Because you can be the best business in the world without having kind of softer touch points and make sure you retain people. Where I would say the priority becomes is, if that's your only competitive advantage is having better people, which for a lot of businesses it is, I can think of many law firms where they're a challenger brand, not the biggest accountancy firms. You know, it's a great example, isn't mm-hmm. it? Or, yeah. yeah, you're probably never ever going to have a bigger brand than them. So how do you compete? You have better people, which offer better service and that sort of thing. So I think it's those service sector people-led businesses where the priority has to change. The legal sector itself, as we know, has had massive change over the last 10 years. And, some have been forced to go down the commodity law route. Some have gone down the route of becoming really high end. But I just don't think you can stand still. And I think for people like that, this data analysis is, is going to be absolutely critical. It's going to be as important as an accountant looking through their, their P&L is yeah. how strong is your HR transformation yeah. team at understanding the data within your business. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And do you think that would apply to, we're kind of, discussing here a, a bit more around the kind of private sector and profit made business but what about your government departments charity sector non-profits do you think it's just as as applicable and important so i think it's definitely as, as important and it's definitely as applicable for me personally in terms of our client base that's not a, a space we play as, as heavily in and i think with what we're doing i think as well that might be something that we don't expand into with with a sort of analysis and consultancy wrap around with adam i think the problem you've got is 
it's all well and good having the data for people, but they've got to be a business that's serious about using it really for, for us to be interested. But that's not to say somebody else wouldn't be doing it or you know, certainly if you, if you work in the big four, KPMG and PwC and people that already do kind of some of the stuff we do, they just do it for much bigger businesses. So mm. definitely think there is a huge market there. I definitely think they need it possibly even more than anyone else. Right. But I think you've got to know what you're dealing with there. If, you, if you're trying to bring change basically to the NHS or a large organization, yeah. it's going to be a far bigger challenge than changing a private sector business that's currently number three in their market and they want to be number one by improving their people pillar. We've covered quite a lot already. If people who are listening to the podcast and and they're facing these challenges, and it, where where do you where have you learnt the most? Where where do you, people who want to find out more do a bit learning, understanding, try and find some practical tips to to get involved? Have you learnt everything and as you've gone along just by finding the best way, or do you think there's there's stuff out there that people should be getting involved in or listening to, reading, etc.? I think there's a lot of reading material if, if you look on any social media around HR analytics, if you're around culture, around employer branding, that kind of thing. There's a lot of specialists as well as people who built whole businesses around I mean, the culture consultancy is one that we've worked with that, that, is, that is all they do and they are brilliant at it. So right. I, I think that's that's kind of it. on a professional level. If you're saying how does somebody tomorrow go and work on their culture, that that's really where I'd point them to, to begin with. The bigger picture of data and understanding that to improve your culture, I think, is a, a longer term, bigger financial investment, bigger commitment, and doesn't probably suit everybody. But yeah, I'd just say you can read about it all day, but I'd go and talk to an expert. It's, it's yeah, without, without sounding ridiculous, it's like you're ill. You go and see a doctor. You could spend two years reading up about cancer. Yeah. You'd just go and see a doctor, wouldn't you? And, and I do think there's great businesses out there that work with culture and employer branding fantastically. I think you're right. I've started to get, as you, as you well know, I've started to get more involved in that whole area myself, coming from my non-people-based background, but a business owner, I would say. So, but starting to work with Vimra Honey Badges certainly opened my eyes to a lot of that stuff. Been really interesting. Okay, uh, well, that's pretty much everything. I think we've covered quite a lot there. Really, is there anything else that you think might be of interest to anybody listening? I think the only one is obviously what's gone in 2020. I think um, yeah, I mentioned the C word, but we've probably not touched on um, agile working and the impact of that on culture. I think yeah, it's it's really new to us and really new to a lot of businesses, but it's not new to everybody. And big international, particularly American software firms, I can think of where agile working is phenomenal. But I, I just wonder where that will take culture and yeah, boarding and that sort of stuff. Certainly for our business, my main sort of concern this year was that people just wouldn't hire because. They didn't feel comfortable doing that without that kind of human interaction and that's obviously changed radically so yeah it's just going to be interesting to see where next year and beyond goes with if you've got a great culture or you're trying to build a great culture but now everybody or 90 percent of your staff are agile flexible workers mm. that just adds another layer for me of well it's opportunity on the one end but lots of opportunity also to get it wrong being honest yeah what what are you actually seeing i was actually going to mention that actually earlier and, and... Didn't become it. You know, obviously, are you seeing a change in the way that businesses are going about it? You know, do you think it's over on balance? Do you think it's more positive, more negative? What are you seeing in, in probably good and bad examples of of the way that culture is changing? Yeah, I think it's probably too early to say how much this year has impacted, but I, it's where it's definitely been a huge positive is people are now having to be open minded about. Well, I'm not going to meet the person who's getting the job down south that normally I'd go and have a day in London with them, it's going to be done on Teams or Zoom. So those obvious changes are happening already. 
I think it's about how do they knit them into the business? How do you make sure that firstly you're on top of these people and giving them the development they want, giving them the management, but how are you spotting the problems that normally you might see sort of incidental learning, you might see somebody who's struggling, you might physically be in an office with them. So the, the positives are there, but I think there's the negatives, it's probably too early to say, but there will definitely be stories of businesses. That how are you managing that? Are you, you know, with you're obviously you becoming more open to recruiting business people from, you know, non-local employees, or you know, are you finding it? How are you finding it on on a, on a kind of personal level? So the team have been amazing. So most people have reacted brilliantly to to agile working. So the short to medium term has been probably a good thing really for us because there's certain clients now that would, would happily meet people and talk to us without. Um, say lots of interviews where they have to go and travel and all yeah. that. So I think that's positive. But the biggest positive, if we get it right, is that we don't have to have to hire anymore in a certain location for ourselves, which means we can now get regional expertise with somebody who works remotely who can also do their hiring remotely. So I guess there was a little bit of old-fashioned. So, yeah, so, so as I was saying, the, the real long-term opportunity is, I think, being able to actually hire people for ourselves that are both in their own right remote workers but they'll then have their own regional network and then on top of that a client base who we were quite old-fashioned with yeah you know, we would like for, for good reason we'd want to meet the client we'd want to meet the candidates and that was kind of one of our selling points that you know we're not just a cv shop we're, we're out there hiring so from a recruitment perspective i think we can bring the same quality by using technology just because everybody's adopted it overnight there's not this snobbery of well these guys have told me that they're based locally in frankfurt and you're not therefore we'll use them not you either. so use that location just because I've done work in Western Europe and um, they are particular about where you're based so so there's a lot of positives but I think there's going to be a lot of change next year on top of this year you know I think when people want to get back to some sort of normality which is hopefully not too far away we'll start to see really who's made those strides and, and who's been left behind by what's gone on in 2020. I see what do you think that might look like then when you say you know we'll see who's made those strides and what do you think 2021 might look like for example? So. I think there's businesses that we hire for who have absolutely pushed on now, who are hiring actively, they are transforming their business, they're hiring HR transformation teams, they are very, very serious about their growth and they're in the right market as well at this time, you know, they're not struggling. And yet we're also working with people who are kind of treading water, hoping that it will just lift and, and you know, we'll come out of it next year. So. Inevitably, I think there'll be markets that they've got a different market leader. The challenger brand is now the market leader. You've got businesses that were market leaders that will go under. Yeah. And even, you know, there's the obvious ones like you know, the airlines and the travel sector is obviously massively shaken up. But even less extreme ones than that. There's been a lot of change in e-commerce this year. Yeah, it was very much at one point two or three major e-commerce platforms. I can now see four or five emerging that seem to have just emerged ridiculously quickly into the e-commerce space so anybody who's taking their business online now has got a lot more options so yeah i think it's it's going to be huge i think next year will be i mean obviously it's going to be tempered a little bit with what's going on this year but i think it'll be the first year where we start to see how big the change was this year what do you think the impact on that will be on like sort of on organizational culture how do you think will have changed in that regard so start with the negative i think there's going to be a lot of businesses who are coming back out rebuilding their employer brand because they have inevitably had to make lots of redundancies. So there's a transformation opportunity there to say, we're back, we're hiring, we're growing, and, and kind of the, the work there. 
and there's other businesses who quite literally are mopping up the talent who can't hire fast enough and it'll be seeing how they get on next year and, and, and what that looks like for them. And, and some of them, by the way, I'm not talking about like cutting edge technology. Some of these businesses I'm referring to are industrial businesses that hmm. have been around for 50 or 100 years that are X generation down in, in terms of family ownership. But they've just decided this is the year they've got to change and things that they've probably been lagging around and stalling on that they've been forced to make massive change in 2020. So hopefully that'll be where all the positives are. That's interesting. Well, I think there's only the final question that we ask of all our guests, just for a bit of fun, really, is that um, <laughs> you might know we our organisation, our company is called Honey Badger. There's a YouTube video that makes us all laugh that brought us together, but also there's there's a genuine there is some genuine thought behind it in that they're, they're very uh, fearless, powerful, intelligent creatures, and it's, it's something that we try and build those kind of values and characteristics through the whole organisational culture. So, sort of note we we ask everybody if you were an animal, which one would you be and why? <laughs> <laughs> I have to be honest with you, I've always been fascinated by golden eagles. I just think the fact that they can fly so far, so high, and they can see everything. I think it probably tells you a lot about how nosy I am. <laughs> And how I like to be able to see everything. But yeah, no, it's quite a funny question that. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. No, no, that's been uh, really interesting. I got a lot out of it, so, and I'm sure everybody else will. So thanks very much, and uh, I'm sure I'll speak to you again soon, Richard. Cheers. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, Gareth. So that's all for this episode of CultureCast. I really hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research and much more. If you want to get in touch with me or any of my guests, then please do get in touch using the details on the podcast show notes. Thanks and hopefully I'll speak to you again soon.